I'd like to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be beginning in verse 7. And while you get your Bibles out and do that, and by the way, I'd love for you to keep your Bibles out all during this lesson, because it is my great pleasure at this hour to turn our attention to God's revelation to us in His great book, Other Than Nature. It is my preference by far to speak from this book. I'm happy to talk about nature in God's other book, but I'd much rather talk about this one because it gives us the message of salvation. So while you're turning, I want to take just a moment and say a few words of introduction and thanks. It has been a great privilege to be with you. It's my first time to visit the Monte Vista Church, and I can tell you I'm leaving with wonderful memories and a great impression of what's happening here. I'm thankful for such enthusiasm and inspired work together for the growth of the congregation and for the spread of the population in here from little ones, younger people, to older folks, and you are blessed to have a group of men and their wives and families serving you as elders. Not all congregations are so blessed. So I hope you lift up their hands and make their jobs easy. And for what part you can play, be supporters and helpers of the elders, uh, the shepherds, the bishops of this church. They need that. They have a massively important responsibility. And we, we know you're blessed to have them. I appreciate the privilege of having the opportunity of speaking with you. I bring you greetings from the congregation in Lutz, Florida, and I hope you can come visit us sometime. One of my great privileges is to do things like this all over this country. So I want to give you a word of encouragement. Sometimes we get a little discouraged with the way this country is going, wouldn't you say? And the change in morality that we see. The decline in interest in spiritual things on the part of too many. Be encouraged that there are lots of congregations like this one all over this country that are growing and prospering and developing and bringing people to Christ that are full of enthusiasm. <clears throat> Some are dying also, of course. It's always been that way. But be encouraged. There are lots of brothers and sisters of Christ, not only in the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but around the world who love God and want to do what he wants us to do, who today are worshiping God as you are. And in spite of a virus... People still are caring about serving God the way he calls us to do. So thank you. It's been a privilege to be here. And for those who've provided for me during the course of the weekend, thank you for all of that. The passage we're going to read in Philippians chapter 3 is written by a man in prison. This man at earlier times in his life was widely known among his people for one who is passionate about his faith and who was willing to act upon it in stern fashion if necessary. He was, as he says of himself, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers ever in the Jewish religion of that time. <clears throat> and so widely respected as one young and ready to do his part for the faith of Israel. 
In the course of that, he learned of the beginning of a new movement. People that were calling themselves followers of Jesus, the Christ. And he became inflamed about their effect because thousands of people were responding. And leaving their Judaistic faith to become Christians. And it was his avowed purpose with the full support of his leaders to stamp out this new heresy that was infecting God's people. That's who wrote what I'm about to read you. Verse 7. But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are before. I press toward the goal for the prize of the onward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. The title of my lesson today is A Magnificent Obsession. Neither of those words are used in that passage. But I think I've just read to you a man who had a magnificent obsession. Because he had turned his life from persecuting Christians to a complete and utter devotion to the one whom he had been persecuting. To the point that he sat in a prison because of his dedication to Jesus the Christ whom he now claimed as his Lord. I didn't make up those two words. Those are two English words. But they came from the title of a book. When I was nine years old, my father was bringing our family back from the Netherlands. We had spent five years there with my father preaching the gospel in Holland after the war. A lot of bombed out buildings. A lot of people responded to the gospel call after the war. 
Holland was bombed unmercifully. We were on our way home from that adventure. On the New Amsterdam, we came over on a tanker, so this was a slight improvement. And one of the things that happened on that trip home, we kids were having a blast. I won't tell you some of the things we did we shouldn't have done, but <laughs> we did go to a movie on the, on, the, on the new boat, and it was entitled A Magnificent Obsession. Have you seen that? Some of you have. That was 1954. It was based on a book by the same name by Lloyd Douglas. Maybe you remember Lloyd Douglas. His most famous work was The Robe, a story of the soldier who at the foot of the cross of Jesus won the lottery and got the robe of Jesus. Of course, it's a fictional story, but it's built around a biblical theme. And that was Lloyd Douglas's great contribution. So was this one. It was built around a biblical theme from Matthew 5 and 6 and how Jesus taught us to behave. So I'm going to tell you just a little bit of that story and tease you enough to say, you ought to go read that book. Don't watch the movie. Read the book. <laughs> the book's better. It begins on a lake, and there's a guy on a big old fancy boat. He is a playboy, about the best you can say for him. His name is Bobby Merrick, and he's causing trouble as usual. He is zooming around that lake on that boat like a crazy man and gets in a terrible accident and is about to die, and he needs an piece of equipment to resuscitate him. At the same time, there's a doctor named Dr. Phillips who's taking his usual workout in the same lake. And in the course of his workout, he has a heart attack. This man was a world-renowned brain surgeon. And he also needed that same piece of equipment. There was only one near that lake enough to help anybody. They took it and resuscitated Bobby Merrick, the playboy, and Dr. Phillips died. That's how the story starts. As the story unfolds, <clears throat> Bobby Merrick continues his playboy style. And one of the folks that helped him is, Bob, is Dr. Phillips's medical practice. So he got to know Dr. Phillips's wife, Helen, and he was coming on to her. You know, that's what playboys do. And he tried to get her to get interested in him. And in the course of all that, he began learning things about how he is alive and Dr. Phillips is dead. Because by that chance happening, he survived and Dr. Phillips didn't. Well, in the course of his behavior, he had a part in an accident that Helen had, which cost her her eyesight. Bobby Merrick was just a destruction waiting to happen. That's about all he was worth. He was a useless human being. And took advantage of every situation he could. Here's what he started learning. People would come to Helen 
and to his practice and say, we think it's okay to tell you now. And they would explain what Dr. Phillips had done for them. They would say, we had a terrible situation. We couldn't pay this bill. And he would say, that is okay. It's on my part for you with one proviso. You are not to tell anyone about this, lest it lose its power. He believed in Matthew 6. It says, when you do your alms, do not let them be seen by men, lest you have already received your reward. He said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. And our God who sees in secret will reward you openly. Well, they just had people coming to them over and over again. Look what Dr. Phillips did for me. He gave his life in service to everybody else, which is why Helen didn't have much left in their bank account because he was always helping other people. And Bobby began learning about the loss of this man who had clearly a total different view of life And he came one day in this story and said, I'm going to go to med school. And everybody said, right, and we're going to jump over the moon. <clears throat> Fat chance of that. Well, the fact is he ended up going to med school. And then he went to a specialty in brain surgery. And that's as far as I'm going to talk to you. because he got a magnificent obsession. And his whole life changed. And it turned into something fabulous at the end of that story. So you go read the story. But my message today is much more serious than that. Because I want to tell you a second story that's real to me. Marilyn and I decided to move to Romania in 1993. After a visit over there, I went twice to find out if it was truly free now in the Eastern European countries to preach the gospel. And it was. Even though there was still a lot of communist influence, you had the right to teach people about Jesus. And we just couldn't live with it and not go. So we made our decision to quit all the responsibilities we had and leave and go to Bucharest and preach the gospel. We found many folks, people that had never read the Bible because for 25 years, Nikolai Ceausescu had forbidden it, one of the worst dictators in the Eastern European countries. And prior to that, things were not a whole lot better in that country. And so the privilege of opening up the Word of God and learning about God and learning about Jesus the Christ was an amazing thing to those folks. And I found many atheists there who, who had been taught under the communist system. Not only is God a foolish notion, but it's dangerous. Sound familiar? So the story I want to tell you is about a young merchant marine that I met in Constanza the seacoast town on the Black Sea in Romania, who was out to sea most of his life because the merchant marines travel all over the world. 
but I had him for a week. We spent the whole week doing what I've been doing we do this weekend, opening up to him the natural world. He was not a believer in God. You don't start with the Bible, folks, with somebody who doesn't even believe God exists. In my mind, you start with the evidence of the natural world and try to show him there's a good reason to believe in God. And I can tell you as all of this unfolded before his eyes, he'd never heard any of this, the other side of the story, and he was very entranced. And it allowed us to proceed from God to God's other book, this one, and tell him about Jesus the Christ. So in a week's time, we spent, I'm going to say, six or eight hours a day together. And it was wonderful. He had to leave for the Merchant Marines, and I never saw him again. But I'll not forget what he told me toward the end of our discussion. He said, Mr. Payne, I just want to tell you, I was raised in a little village near Constanza, and we had a church building in the middle of town like every other village did. That's the Romanian Orthodox Church that dominates Romania. And every village has a church building, and it has a priest that serves that community. And I'm telling you, it's the dominant force in the village. And his comment was to me was, these people that I have grown up with believe in God, they say, and Jesus Christ. But they sure don't act like it. Everybody in the village knew that our priest was the biggest womanizer in town, in the village. And he was the town drunk. And our villagers would go up to him and they would kneel down before him and he'd do things over their head and pronounce their sins forgiven. And this man was a total reprobate. And then once they got their sins forgiven, they went out and they did all kinds of awful things. I watched them because they knew they could go to this reprobate and get their sins forgiven. I said, what you're telling me about Jesus Christ sounds to me like I ought to be giving my whole life to him. But I sure haven't seen that in people who say they believe in him. And I want to tell you, folks, it is my opinion that many times the greatest obstacle to someone coming to Christ and becoming a believer in God is the people who say they do. Because they don't act like it. So may I say to all of you today, if anything I've done, whatever little pittance, excuse me, that God has given me the opportunity to give, if it has helped you be more in awe of the God we serve and more filled up with the passion I just read you about Philippians 3, this man, beloved, completely changed his life. 
And it was never the same again. He ended up in prison because he would not veer from his conviction that Jesus is the Christ. I don't know if this man ever got over that. I prayed for him a lot. I hope he did. And I'll tell you what else I hope. I hope that my life and yours will be some effect on somebody that says to them, here's somebody that's real about their faith. It's not playtime for me. Whatever it takes is what I will do to do what the Lord wants me to do. And there will be nothing to stand in the way. Isn't that what you heard in this passage? There's one thing I do. I'm asking you, Christian, today. And I prayed this morning for the capacity to get it across to me again. I do this for me, folks, because we get weak and lazy and disconcerted in the midst of all that Satan has to throw at us. And we must not let him do that to us. We must keep the one thing that matters ahead of everything else. And what is that? Well, he called it the prize over the upward call in Christ Jesus. There isn't anything else. And if I'm letting anything else take first place over that, then I am harming the cause of my Lord whom I said I serve. How that looks in everybody's case, you're going to have to decide for yourself, as I will. But my question is, this kind of single-minded devotion that Paul had, the one thing for which he had given himself. Can we get such a vision? You say, he was an apostle. He was specially called. Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He had a lot of advantages. He could do miracles. And you're right. But that's not what made him the passionate, devoted disciple. It was his decision. So can we do that? I want you to turn back to another book he wrote from prison, Ephesians chapter 3, one book back. And what I would like to do next is read a prayer from the pen of the Apostle Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, and it's a prayer for you, my beloved brothers and sisters, and me. So when I read this prayer, would you please humbly put your name in there? Because it's for you and for me. For this reason, I'm in verse 14. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. When you finish reading that prayer, how do you answer this question? Can you get such a vision? Listen, beloved. The Lord can do exceedingly abundantly above anything you can ask or think. And how does he do it? Did you notice? Through the power that works in us. That's how he does it. And that power is released when we decide there's only one thing that is going to guide my life. And it's my Lord Jesus Christ. And compared to that, there isn't anything else. Now, how does that look? Well, we could talk about a lot of things. I pray for congregations of saints, like this church right here. And one of the advantages of coming in as a guest speaker is I don't know you folks, so I can get away with saying things. And you know I'm not picking on you. I'm just teaching principles here. But I guarantee you they apply to you, just like they do to me. I pray for congregations of saints who are so devoted to the word of God they can't get enough. So I want to use two examples. Let's go to Matthew 4 and listen to Jesus. Bible students know that Matthew, the fourth chapter, begins with a discussion of the great temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You remember? You can't answer out loud in this assembly, but you can nod your head. He was tempted three times in this passage, right? My subject is not the temptations. It's what he did about it. So the first one is in verse 4 or verse 3. The tempter said, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. <clears throat> and what did Jesus do with that? He said, it is written. And he quoted, man shall not live by bread alone. <clears throat> and all of you know that was from your favorite book in the Bible, the one you read all the time. Deuteronomy. May I make a little side trip here? Deuteronomy is a massively important book. It's got all kinds of wonderful things in it to teach us things. I have a doubt that you've spent much time in Deuteronomy at all. It's kind of boring, most folks think. It's rich. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy in the first temptation. 
The second one was to get up on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off. The angels are going to catch you. What did he say in verse 7? It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Guess what book that's from? Deuteronomy. The second temptation, Jesus quoted what God said in his book, Deuteronomy. Then he was tempted again. He said, if I'll give you everything if you'll fall down and worship me, says Satan. And Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Guess what? That is also from Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Here's my point to you, beloved. Every part of the Bible is important. Jesus illustrated that. And what Jesus wants us to do is to be so prepared for Satan's temptations that everything he throws in our way, we know exactly what God wants. And we can tell him, this is what God wants, and I'm not doing what you want. You know how you do that? Total devotion to what God's given us. That gentleman I told you about, he said, I've never had one of these. I gave him one, of course. He felt like he'd gotten something precious. May I ask you, beloved? Is that how you feel about this book? That is the word of the God of heaven we've been talking about here that does such incredible things? And as we were told so vividly around the Lord's table and in our talk today, willing to give himself in our place, we are nothing before him. It's the treasure of all treasures. And the other passage I want you to look at with me briefly is Acts chapter 20. This same Apostle Paul is in this passage also. And he has called the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he's talking to them before he had to leave them. And they end this chapter by saying they're crying and kissing each other with the thought they'll never see each other again. So may I say to you all right now, I'm kind of weepy this morning myself. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I may never see you folks again. And I've already fallen in love with you. And I just wish Marilyn could have been here too. So I'm going to try to tell her all about you. But if I had one thing to say to you as I'm leaving, I'd want to say what the Apostle Paul said. And to those of you that are elders in this church, God bless you. Paul said in verse 28, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God or the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. I guarantee you these elders have already seen that happen in their, before their eyes, if not here somewhere else. 
I saw it in Romania. And I weep about it to this day. Here's your only hope, elders and members of this church. Verse 31. Watch and remember that for the three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God. I want to repeat Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. There is no other hope. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, your only hope, beloved elders and members of this church, is to cling with all that's in you to the word of his grace that'll take you to heaven. I pray for congregations of saints who are so devoted to the word of God they can't get enough of it. It becomes the passion of their life. But there's another thing I want to spend the little bit of time I have left with you on, and it's as important if not more. If I could get this across today, I will have felt I have done something valuable. Let's go back to Matthew 6. This same chapter that Dr. Phillips in the Magnificent Obsession had really a passion about. He wanted to live his life the way this passage taught. So listen to Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Listen, was Christ against public prayers? No, no, no. He promoted it in First and Second Timothy. He's not against public prayers. But ladies and gentlemen, Public prayers are not the true test of your connection to God. Because public prayers can be for other reasons. And they can have motivations that aren't necessarily good. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So I want to ask you, my beloved brothers and sisters, is it the habit, the passion of your life to spend time alone with the God of heaven and Jesus Christ your Lord? When you go in a room and you close the door, how many in that room? You and your God. That's it. And I want to tell you that was a pattern of the life of every faithful servant of God, including Jesus Christ while he was a man. He spent time in secret with his father. How about you? Here's the amazing thing. I have four scriptures up here. We're going to turn to one. Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> this letter was addressed to a church, the church at Laodicea. It's also addressed to the church at Monte Vista. 
because it's for us too. And here's the amazing thing. In my Bible, this has red letters. And y'all know what that means, right? Sorry, I said y'all. I'm a southerner. <laughs> that means Christ said it, doesn't it? These are words from our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. Behold, verse 20, talking to Christians. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the one of whom the Bible says he was in the beginning with God. He was God, and he was with God, and all things were made by him, and not anything was made without him. <clears throat> John 1.1, 1, 1. he's the creator of the universe. And what's he saying to you, individual Christian? Open the door and let me in, and I'll come dine with you. How many people in the room? You and Jesus, that's it. I don't know how many times you dine. I eat usually three times a day, but at least once a day. So my question is, how many times have you turned down Jesus' personal invitation to dine with you? How about yesterday? Have you let one single day go by where you turn down the most important thing you have to do that day to meet with Jesus by yourself. And I don't know you that well, but I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I guarantee you probably half of people in this room did not spend time in secret with Jesus every day this last week. That's my suspicion. And if you didn't, welcome to my club because I've been, I was that way for a long, long time. And may I give you the personal testimony, please forgive me for being personal. When I became finally convinced that my secret time with God was more important than anything else, I have not missed one day since then. And it comes first and if it doesn't, if something hinders it in any way, it's like the whole day is wrong. Now I'm saying to you, beloved, and I probably shouldn't be yelling about this. If you could ever convince yourself that I can't go one day without being in secret with my God and immersing myself in what he says and pouring out my heart to him in private. Nobody else around. Nobody hears one word I'm saying. There is nothing in this except my determination to get closer to my Lord. May I say to you, it'll change your whole life. You'll get much closer to Philippians 3, 7 through 13 where Jesus becomes the one thing above everything else. I beg of you, don't let another day go by that you haven't made that commitment. And here is icing on the cake. I'm not going to all these passages, don't worry. 
passage, you go page through the book of Luke, and you see how many times Jesus, my Lord, when he was in the human condition, got off by himself away from everybody. If he needed that, you think I need that? And he did it on purpose, folks. He made certain it happened. You say, well, today I was just too busy. There were so many things. You think you're busier than our Lord was during his personal ministry? I'm sorry, that won't stand up. I would say to you, beloved, whatever it takes, you put him first. And you watch what happens. as he can do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think, and you're going to pour out what you're thinking, what you're doing, and he's going to multiply what can come out of that. And then I pray for congregations that will take the gospel to the whole world, and that's another whole sermon, a part of which you heard this morning. I'm not preaching that one. And then I pray for churches that love one another as Christ loved, him, loved us. That's life-changing also, and it will change the world. But that's another whole sermon, and I'm done. I press toward the mark or the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, said the Apostle Paul, and he absolutely <coughs> did it. No wonder it was said of him, here comes this man who's turned the world upside down. He's come to our community too. And boy, he did, and he turned him upside down too. And some of them put him in prison for it. Didn't move him one ounce. So I'm here to ask you, beloved, to decide once and for all to have your own magnificent obsession and become a servant like you've never been. And let the Lord work through you in amazing and undomitable ways. So maybe you need the prayers of the saints to help you get started on that new path for you as a Christian. Or maybe you're not a Christian yet. I hope something comes out of this for you. I hope you see that if you don't give your life to Jesus, you're wasting so much time and precious energy that could be directed to the most important thing there is. Come to Jesus. He's your Savior. Confess that you believe he's the Son of God and we'll stop everything I can see there's water ready to immerse you into the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins because that's what Jesus said to do. And then you'll rise to walk a new life. Hopefully it's like what we just described. Please come while we stand and as we sing.